We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. Today, uh, I am your host, Harrison Cayley. Joining me, uh, it's been a while, uh, Bo Christensen is joining us. Hello. And we've got uh, William Barbe in the studio as well. Hello, everyone. And today, we are pleased to have joining us Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman. Jim and Hugh are the authors of Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds, and the Smithsonian Files. Now, this book came out in October 2015, I believe, and um, we're just getting around to it now. Uh, I went, As soon as it came out, I, I saw it, but uh, I didn't get around to reading it at the time. Um, I put it on my on my Amazon wish list, and, uh, you know, so finally we got a copy and managed to, um, you know, dig into it. And there is some amazing stuff in it, um, I remember the reason I was looking out for this book was uh, a couple years ago, We, we um, Jim did a TEDx talk uh, that was going around the internet for a while, which was really intriguing, and we'll be getting into some of the stuff that he talked about there, and that Jim and Hugh both write about in the book. Um, so to start out with, um, welcome to the show, Jim and Hugh, it's great to have you on. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot, appreciate it. And to start out with, maybe you guys could just tell us a bit about... Um, both of you, how you came to um, come to this subject? I know there's a lot of subjects subjects in the book, but um, kind of what what led you to in this direction to eventually write this book? Uh, maybe we can start with uh, Jim and then go to Hugh. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I'm a stonemason by trade. I studied uh, Native American history and civilizations uh, or, or tribes around the country <clears throat> here in the U.S. for about 25 years, and, and I was just fascinated with Native American stonework that isn't very well known about in the eastern half of the country. You know, you know about all the, the kivas and uh, the cliff dwellings out in the southwest, but there were hillside forts and, and um, 55-foot stone mounds in Ohio and, and, you know, just really intriguing stone structures, and I ended up finding... Um, a lot of accounts in New England in the the documents that talked about uh, stone ruins existing before the colonists showed up. And by virtue of that that search, I started to look through town and county histories, and I started to run in uh, kind of um, tangentially to this, these bizarre giant skeleton accounts all around New England. And uh, I find they were often mentioned by professionals um, of the time, scientists and doctors and, and antiquarians, Basically, uh, giving matter-of-fact descriptions of enormous skeletons often obscurely buried in, in uh, these documents like town and county history. So, you know, I, I would uh, delve into this and, and, you know, I would share my information with different people, with, with professionals. And I'd often get a lot of ah, those are exaggerations and hoaxes and, you know, it was the folklore of the time <clears throat> or they were mastodon bones or whatever. And I didn't find that. I found that these were human burials. Um kind of uniquely and in, in, um, well-described human burials, like seating postures and anatomic anomalies, like the jawbone had fit over the face. 
So I just gathered steam and I, I met Hugh and, and we got together with Ross Hamilton, Mike Ewers, other researchers and just compiled, you know, Jesus essentially like a thousand of these accounts in ancient America of seven foot and tall skeletons and then about 500 more worldwide, especially in Britain, Ireland, Italy and France. And uh, just the whole thing is uh, fascinating and, and kind of a stunning uh, um, alternative history, if you will. Hugh, what about you? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the Giants have just been something that's been, it's, you know, it's kind of been in my childhood, really, with I was obsessed by, like, Cyclops and things like this. But <clears throat> really, it's to do with uh, the megaliths, because uh, in Britain, many of the megalithic sites, which I've been researching for many, many years, um, have legends and stories of giants associated with them. Even the founding of Britain has giant stories with the Brutus defeating the great giant Gog Magog down on the South coast. Um, but you know, and I was kind of aware of this. I thought I felt like it was all legend and just stories for a while. But then when I went to America and I actually, before I met Jim, I was uh, exploring and researching all the megalithic sites in new England, right near where he lived funnily enough. And, um, and at that time, I went to look at the Malculture sites. I came across the work of Ross Hamilton and, to some extent, David Hatch Childress as well. Uh, and it was actually, I was actually staying in David Childress's house when Ross's book kind of fell off the shelf. And it's called A Tradition of Giants. And that was back in something like 2006, 2007. And, uh, and I've kind of been researching. I knew about the giants in America, and, and but that book really opened the door for me, and it made me realize this is a real phenomenon. And it utterly blew my mind. I read the whole thing in one sitting, and um, and it really uh, woke me up to the reality of these giants. And then um, I investigated some accounts down in Lompoc Rancho in, in California and other places, and eventually I met Jim at the conference that I organized uh, back in 2011 in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Uh, we did a Megalithomania conference there, and we were talking a lot about giants. And Ross Hamilton, the legendary author of Tradition of Giants, who, by the way, we call the godfather of giantology for good reason, um, was speaking there uh, via Skype. And I met Jim there. And from then on, we kind of realized, you know, we have to kind of get our teeth into this. And we decided to put a book together several years ago. This was now it's probably in about 2012, 2013. We really decided to do it. Um, but then History Channel kind of jumped in and stole Jim um, and uh, and uh, did the search for the Lost Giants TV show. So it delayed the book a little bit, but it kind of correlated and came together. And we, you know, now we're stretching. You know, since the books come out. Uh, more accounts have been discovered in North America, and it's kind of causing a bit of a sensation. We even got lots of skeptics really angry at us, which is a good thing. And, uh, and now one of them is actually quite nice to us, apparently. And um, <laughs> But and it, it really did open the door, that book and, and that TV show, and really pushed it into like the mainstream. And now we're kind of looking at Britain, we're looking around the world, and all these stories from the Bible, myths and legends, there's a huge reality there. And... You know, it's just, a, it's just, a, you know, the reason I'm fascinated by it, not just because they're tall people, that, that that isn't particularly interesting in itself, but the fact that it's like being erased from the historical record. And, what, and so why is that? What's that all about? What is, the, what is the reasoning behind that? So this is something we kind of investigate from that angle and also the relationship to these sites. Because in America, you've got all the mound culture sites and most, you know, a majority of the discoveries of the accounts we've, we've looked at 
uh, are found within these mounds or certainly nearby or sometimes related to some stone sites as well as a few connections in new england and other places but all around the world the megaliths are connected with the giants so this is something you know we want to push push forward with and uh, see what we come up with well on to get into some of the specifics for our listeners who haven't read the book or seen any of the videos can you describe for us some of just what the typical account of these giants is like so when you say giant what do you mean and what kind of um remains or evidence have these um these people found like what do you see in these in the historical records that you guys have discovered one thing i'd like to <clears throat> mention before we get into that is what i found really interesting the way you guys wrote the book is that you looked at uh, a lot of these case histories and you also tried to weed out what were the fake news and, yeah. and and stuff and i really like i really appreciated that oh thank you yeah we continue to do that um you know with the, like the fake horn skull that goes around the internet <clears throat> the smithsonian destruction of skeletons report that that was obviously false you you have to this is a part of <clears throat> the whole dynamic of of um uh geez i'd say it's just uh, across the board with human behavior, uh, I found that agenda makes you stupid. And a lot of people have agendas, right? It's like we could live in this alternate universe in an echo chamber and, and whistle past the graveyard and not look at the other side of the argument. And for me personally, I engage skeptics who are reasonable, who aren't a-holes, who, uh, you know, I spoke at Andy White's anthropology class a couple months ago. I, I work with professionals. I work with uh, teams of archaeologists and digs for my shows, you know, like we just did a new Roanoke special that's coming out at the end of the month. And uh, I have a really good relationship with a lot of professionals and I bring it to the toughest critics and we um, debate these matters, these controversial subjects. But if you don't look at the full breadth of, of an issue and act actively try to debunk things uh, that, that aren't, you know, have no veracity, uh, then you're just kind of a snake oiler, in my estimation. So Hugh, myself, there's people we work with, uh, you know, like uh, Ross Hamilton, Andrew Collins, Greg Little, objective, reasonable people who are looking at a very controversial topic. And uh, to, to address what was reported and found, I'll say, you know, uh, it's really stunning, like, like heads of anthropology and archaeology in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s are along with the Smithsonian uh, ethnologists of the turn of the century, are reporting <clears throat> seven foot and tall skeletons routinely, you know, seven, six, seven, eight, over eight foot tall, um, giving dimensions and femur measurements, 28 inches, and, uh, you know, uh, circumferences of skulls, like 36 inches in the Smithsonian ethnology report. And, you know, 1873, that's a really interesting one. You know, one of, one of the issues is a lot of these crumble to dust, uh, they were in, in, you know, ancient tombs opened up and they talked about the scientists would pull out the, the bones out and they crumble the dust. And it, it's like, you know, um, it, that was thrown back at me like I made that up, frankly, uh, so I didn't have to show evidence of giants, you know, with my old Ted, <laughs> Ted talk thing. But the honest truth is, is from like town and county histories and the Smithsonian, Smithsonian ethnology reports talk about that their own scientists talk about that. But there are remains that were put on display. The town is a buzz. And, oh, geez, it just seems like it all happened at the wrong time. These burial mounds sat there for thousands and thousands of years. Obviously, natives never touched them uh, because they were so revered. And then the Europeans came in and just destroyed and desecrated uh, and tried to basically 
you know, you can't you can't destroy and celebrate a culture at the same time. And and it wasn't part of evolution. The idea of giants, Native Americans that were sophisticated is something uh, no nobody wanted to see in power. They, they basically wanted to uh, portray them as savage and disorganized. And uh, the whole thing has ended up being a conundrum. And we're trying to piece together, you know, the distant echoes of the past with all these records. Yeah, uh, that, that's the one thing that I, I'd like to hear more about because, I mean, first of all, it's confusing. Like, why are they so interested in hiding the the, the true history of things from us? So, uh, obviously, uh, if all this is, is true, and there certainly seems to be a lot of evidence that it is, it gets into an alternative theory of history that changes a lot of things and makes things uh, very, very interesting from, from a factual point of view. Maybe you guys can talk about that some more. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and then I'll let Hugh give his his thoughts. Just because you know, I, I like I like to make the point that there were conspiracies in the world. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. There's like ruthless oil companies and and, and uh, you know whacked out politicians and and uh, you know uh, sociopaths running corporations and everything. But in the academic world, it is not a vast conspiracy. It couldn't even be a vast conspiracy, you know, because you just can't look at these independent, you know, men and women just doing their job. Mm -hmm. The problem that I see is the limits of science. What is considered evidence? And, you know, you get into this realm, like I will talk about a lost civilization. You know, we could talk about some things, but I'll get into like my friends who are anthropologists and archaeologists. I'll just say, hey, there's evidence mounting that there was a cataclysm, a flood and a Mm -hmm. pre, and you know, and then it's just like, the the mind goes blank. It's like I just told him the Earth was two thousand years old, or I just saw a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, got unicorns grazing on the lawn, and so there is no like intellectual curiosity or drive beyond that point. Yeah. So you have, um, which I understand. It's just like <clears throat> there is the you know the scientific world. It's like what what I can dig in the ground and analyze. So there is no look at all the things we're talking about. It's really a matter of what is considered evidence also. Like oral traditions all around the planet are telling the same story. Mm-hmm. The Rosicrucians, Freemasons, uh, the great mystics, religious documents. You know, I'll talk to uh, wisdom keepers all around the planet and they'll tell the same alternative story. And it's funny, like I'll, I'll try to be succinct here. All the entities I just mentioned, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, you know, uh, oral traditions, they all say there was a great flood, a cometary impact. They all fear the broom star. There was giants and little people as part of a lost civilization, Atlantis. Edgar Cayce says it. The rest of them say it. And it's just this fascinating how they were all saying the same thing. A comparative mythologist would say the same thing. But then you have this vastly different story, a scientific story, that tried to wrestle away the, the, the throne from religion at the end of the 1800s. And, you know, so it's not a, like, you know, it's not Monsanto. It's, you know, with an in, involving conspiracy, it's like an academic filtration that takes place. Human nature is in there. Mm-hmm. And these subjects have been portrayed as ridiculous, like religious-based and kooky. So if you even get near them, you know, and I will say that, you know, I'm a recovering Catholic. I'm not a Christian, Um, I don't, I, I believe the Bible has a lot of, uh, uh, documented truth in it. And I believe the Epic of Gilgamesh does in the Torah and the Midrash and, and the mystics, you know, so, so I'm not coming from any agenda. I just want to find the truth of the matter. Hugh, did you want to give your two cents on that bit? Uh, yeah, I think you were asking about, um, 
kind of why it's been covered up, uh, why it seems to be like it's been sidelined. There's, there's, it seems like there's evidence of a conspiracy to cover up this whole idea of these giant skeletons, these giant people existing in prehistory. Uh, and that's something we tackle in the book, in the Smithsonian Files chapter. Um, you know, originally when, when we wrote the book, uh, before we wrote it, we were, we, you know, we were like thinking like a lot of other people that there was like an organized conspiracy. There was like an organized, you know, thing to kind of close it down. And when we kind of did the research, we looked through all the old Smithsonian journals, we, we, journals, we do, we do find little bits of evidence of that. We do. And, and it's worrying that, that these high level, um, influential academic institutions, uh, don't mention the giants, even though they discover them in their own annual reports and write about them in their reports and discover them in the mounds and other such things. We've got 17 accounts from the Smithsonian themselves, between seven and eight feet tall. Uh, and then at the end of the book, where most of them are in, the conclusion, there's not one mention of them. So this is something, you know, we've talked about recently with with some other people. And, and, and it's a glaring kind of, you know, it really is glaring. It really does make you question why they don't mention it when it's such an amazing discovery they're finding over and over again. But when you look at the politics and the history and the culture of what was happening during the 1800s in America, uh, especially the late 1800s, we have evolution. Darwin's theory of evolution was taking shape. So the discovery of giant skulls at a 36-inch circumference, 40-inch circumference, didn't really fit in with evolution. That was several thousand years old and things like this. Also, there was Manifest Destiny. So there was this whole movement of, you know, sidelining the Native Americans, putting them on reservations and stopping them, you know, moving forward with their lives and continuing their lifestyle as they had been for thousands of years. Um, but, and so when you're finding Native American giant skeletons with huge skulls means bigger brains, means they were super intelligent. It does not fit with the manifest destiny of trying to sideline them and steal their land and kill them and give them disease and things like this. So there was like political agendas in place as they started finding these giant skeletons and bones and skulls throughout North America. Mm -hmm. So it became like a problem for them. It was like an ongoing giant problem. Um, and so this is something we noted in the book. So we, we kind of, we kind of withdrew, drew back from like shouting conspiracy constantly and actually just put the information together in the order, <clears throat> you know, the order it all happened. And you can see that there's something quite dark going on there. Now, whether it's a, a big organized conspiracy, I, I, I don't think it is that. I think it's just a sequence of events linked with political agendas mm -hmm. um, with, um, you know, also with, you know, agendas that actually spread around the world. But it's really in the early 1900s when Ailes Hadlitska uh, came into power at the Smithsonian. And he was like, in, you know, he was a pre-Nazi eugenist. He was into, um, you know, claiming anyone who wasn't white was, you know, far less superior than them and so on and so forth so it became like this racist agenda that kind of came in with it and so and that doesn't fit um when these so-called native americans are actually you know probably superior to modern humans at the time they were being discovered so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot going on there we tackle it at length uh, and thoroughly in the Smithsonian Files chapter, and that's, that's the one to read if you want to see the kind of full story of what happened. Um, one other thing quickly is in 1990, the NAGPRA Act, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, came into, came into force, and that removed any grave goods, giant skeletons, bones, anything, mummies they found in the Southwest from public display. So all evidence is gone. Uh, so that was another level of kind of, 
removing all the evidence as well. So there's, there's more to it than meets the eye. Let's mm. just say it like that. So it sounds like it's, well, to me, it sounds like, um, what you guys are saying, um, during the times when these reports were actually coming in, there were, um, let's say like historical, like, well, valid from one perspective, um, reasons for why these things would be either ignored or covered up to an extent. And then that puts us in a particular situation today where because the, these things weren't um, focused on at that time and made into these kind of historical scientific precedents, today what we're left to are just these kind of historical anecdotes that uh, I mean, you don't, you can't go to the Smithsonian and see these, these any of these skeletons still on display. So the scientists today, they don't, they don't have the, you know, the evidence to look at now. So all they hear is, oh, there were giants, and then they think that's ridiculous, like you're saying, Jim, like unicorns grazing on the lawn. So there's no, there's no in, in real incentive to look at it. And there's also the fact that, um, you know, even if the people back then weren't thinking of it at the time, today. If this if this were to become big news, where people act, where they, the scientific community actually took it seriously, there are huge implications um, that that, like you said, ch- uh, challenge some very fundamental beliefs about history. Um, you know, the course of humanity, um, what was actually going on twelve thousand years ago. Um, maybe we can go in that direction. But um, to get there, I, w- I want to ask. Um, about this, this, I, um, well, the the kind of timeline of events here. So we've got all of these accounts of um, these uh, giant skeletons, you know, seven to eight feet tall, many of them, and who their remains are found. Now, do I know that that back then they they didn't really they didn't have the technology that we have today to do dating analyses on on these samples. Is there any indication of how old these skeletons were? And a second related part of that question, I know there are some accounts of, you know, colonists coming over and actually encountering live giants. So I was wondering if you could kind of reconcile these, these two. Like when were these, when were these giants actually there? Did they ever actually leave? When did they, you know, disappear? Um, maybe you can clear that up for us. Yeah, I, I would say, um, all the early explorers, the famous ones, um, Coronado, Magellan, John Smith in Virginia, uh, Vespucci, from Patagonia to Virginia, they all encountered enormous native uh, peoples, you know, described between seven and nine feet, if you can believe it. Tuscaloosa in Alabama, almost eight foot tall, and his son, the same size. Uh, these uh, trained observers kept encountering giants and tribes of, of natives that were particularly tall. Thomas Jefferson, we write in the book, he meets Osage warriors six and a half to seven feet tall, and they were described as like noble and stately, handsome and, and awe-inspiring and massive. And we're not talking skinny NBA plays, like just just huge, robust uh, kind of, uh, you know, beings or, or, or people being um, uh, described. And, the you know, the remains go back from, you know, 1700 to – probably a thousand BC or something like that. We know the Adena people were particularly tall. The Royal class elongated their skulls. These are the, the, the skeletons we find in the mounds in the Eastern part of the country. The oldest uh, mounds being the Adena ones, I believe, you know, uh, well over seven foot tall. Um, so, and, and that poses the question, where do the, where do these tall ones come from? You know, there are different stories. There's like the, 
the, the, well, there's a, the idea that the Native Americans, there was a royal class of, of more like benevolent um, of giant people, of the, the legend of the tall ones, the, the great civilizers who showed up uh, after the, the uh, flood 12,000 years ago. And then they speak of uh, like a pre-flood malevolent race of giants all around the world. And the Native peoples talk about them being cannibalistic and... Um, you know, fierce with red hair and we get the Love Law Cave stories and the myths and legends. It's just a wild thing that all these native people. Now, if you look at the history, you know, we keep going back, uh, pushing back the dates in the United States, you know, pre-Clove is 15, 18,000 years, Cactus Hill, Virginia, Meadowcroft Shelter, Monteverde. So the dates are continuing to go back and there's new theories being proposed like the Salutrian hypothesis or they came in boats or whatever. But, um, you know, there's a real mystery here because uh, it doesn't seem like out of Africa is is um, is meshing with the story of, of of giants. You know, it seems like, you know, was there a lost civilization that all these sources talk about? Was there an Atlantis that existed? And that's where everybody pinpoints like Edgar Casey and religious documents and um, the mis- I mean, uh, Rosicrucians, Freemasons, that there were giant people part of the civilization. Are they the ones that landed in the Bible land? And did they land in the United States like the Native Americans would probably say? So it's, um, once again, it's like, what do you listen to as evidence? And I understand, um, you know, trying to piece together uh, this view of the past through through anthropological study, through skeletal remains study. You know, but at the same time, you can have coexisting realities like uniformitarianism, in, in geology and catastrophism, you know, it's obvious there's been catastrophic events. The two can coexist. And in anthropology, we could have another story. You know, evolution is real, I believe. But there's another story. There's genetic intervention. There's a curveball somewhere. We, You know, they just found hobbits in Indonesia in 2002, 2003. It, it's... Um, for me, like all throughout history, when are we going to learn our lesson? You know, Galileo was put onto house arrest. Uh, Velikovsky with Worlds in Collision, he was derided. Graham Hancock, who I think is brilliant and reasonable and objective. He's always catching heat. He's, you know, being mocked like he's a pseudoscientist or whatever. And it's just like, you know, pull your head out of your ass and uh, look at these things objectively. And I would not, you know, to arrogantly look at like we have all the, all the answers, you know, uh, is is idiotic what do we have wrong what are, what's the 14 percent of theories that we have wrong you know let's look at them as a society mm-hmm. well so you mentioned the some of the legends about the pre-flood giants being kind of let's say evil and cannibals but then you also mentioned the 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 more recent um you know giants let's say post flood as as being kind of revered as the the benevolent leaders um you know they're kind of a ruling class um is there anything more to that um like what else do the do the legends say because there seems to be that kind of um kind of like a, a shift in the in the thinking and the the description of let's say you know the psychological nature of of these giants yeah you you want to uh... Yeah. I'll, I'll tackle this one. Uh, yeah, th- that's that's a very good point. I mean, there's a there's a very kind of um, jagged timeline, really, trying to work out who was around when, especially in North America, which we've been focusing on. But even before the so-called flood, the what we we think that in the book we talk about the Younger Dryas impact event. But there is evidence in the oral tradition, the Native American folklore of, uh, and it's very strong. It's very realistic 
of giants existing way back then at the same time as the megafauna. Um, and so we, and then we find the mummy, you find mummified remains in America, uh, often with red hair, some of them supposedly very tall, uh, in Lovelock Cave, uh, you have the Spirit Cave Man, you have Kennewick Man, obviously, not mummified, of course, but, and then you have discoveries that are 7,000 years old, the bog mummies of Florida, and so forth. So there is, uh, a timeline there, but interestingly, um, something that I'm, it's, it's sort of strangely fascinating is that, there's all these stories of cannibalism, and it's it's really quite freaky when you get into it. Because even the Lovelock Cave mummies, which could be several thousand years old, the Paiuti tribe at the time, uh, and this is written about by Sarah Winnemucker Hopkins back in the, the 1800s, they talk about the legends of this race of red-haired people, these vicious kind of tall people around the area of Humboldt Lake and Lovelock Cave, we used to terrorise them and eat them and uh, and actually just eat them for breakfast and, and lunch and dinner and so forth, yum yum, and so, that, so you have this kind of problem um, you know, uh, that they have to deal with and then you start looking into it and you realise many of the legends talk about this, they often talk about um, being attacked being harassed by these man-eating giants all over the country I mean literally everywhere and then there's actual evidence that's been found in Lovelock Cave of marrow being extracted from human bone because they're eating it so we know it's a real thing uh, there's, there's other pieces of archaeological evidence as well to back that up all the way from like Catalina Island all the way up to New England up to Maine we find examples um, and so you have this thing of like yeah there's like these benevolent kind of elites who were probably linked with they were probably the precursors of the Adena probably coming down from Canada and uh, the northwest probably about 6,000 years ago who were benevolent and they interbred between the elite kind of tribes uh, the tribal leaders like the royal class who were like smart intelligent they were passing on the knowledge and the, the sophistication that is evident in the mound culture uh, sites and in their kind of world. But at the same time, there's these other, other groups who weren't like that. They were extremely tall. They were giants, but they were not anything like the Adena. They were like, um, you know, cannibalistic. They would be, there'd be great wars between different tribes. And, uh, and this is strange because you find the same kind of stories in the ancient texts like the old testament the book of, the book of enoch the book of giants within the book of enoch even the dead sea scrolls and things like this and other legends and other ancient texts around the world so that there's a parallel there's like it's almost like there's two different classes of these giants but then you look into it further and you find other types of giants uh, and so it's quite confusing but we try and tackle it especially in the realm of north america and just just beyond the borders um uh, to give it some kind of um to give a kind of understanding of what we know of now more discoveries will probably be made as more dna tests done um but we know that there were the patagonian giants that lived up to at least the 15 or 1600s and they were photographed on further south of patagonia on actually in the antarctic in 1901 by captain cook at the time so there's so there is evidence of giants in different parts of the world leading, you know, living right up to that time. And the DNA thing is really interesting. We, we, you know, when we wrote the book, we did all the latest research, all the latest data on the DNA and the migrations. And it's quite startling when you really think about it. But one of the things that we can, I, I was very strongly kind of convinced of is that there may have been an origin point within North America itself of these giants. Because that's what a lot of the legends state, but that's, um, that's still more research needs to be carried out there. What do you mean by an origin point? What, what might be the hypotheses that, uh, you know, on what, what's the nature of that origin point? 
this is this is the idea of it's called American Genesis. This is like mm-hmm. a theory that's been going around for about fifteen years, uh, but never taken seriously. First put put forward by Jeffrey Goodman, who's an archaeologist, um, and actually wrote a book called American Genesis. It's been taken on by some other people, even one of the, the, the a dental anthropologists we actually interviewed for the TV show and book. Um, and she's now talking about that that like the the beginning of man as such. It's not all out of Africa a hundred thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. There's different points around the world where humans originated. They didn't necessarily come from one place or from apes or whatever. There's a whole different theory coming forth. And uh, when you look at North America, there are skulls that are like modern human kind of almost Cro-Magnon type skulls that have been found in North America that date back 70,000 years. They date back 45,000 years before Cro-Magnon man emerged in Europe around 44,000 years ago. Um, and so we have to question, you know, which way were the migrations going? Was there something going on in North America in deep prehistory and in, and in Central and South America and Canada, of course? And the Pacific was linking up all these different cultures to different parts of the world. There's certainly a lot of evidence for that now. Mm. Uh, the skulls in Brazil um, and uh, they go back to nearly 100,000 years. There's cave paintings that are much older. And so it really puts the whole idea um, of like this deep prehistory into a whole different perspective mm-hmm. um but i think you know the, the, your question was like you know what is this origin point thing well it really is just about you know where humans really came forth on the planet mm-hmm. and you know where they came from is a whole different matter because when you look at the the legends in north america crikey it's like uh, they almost came down from the sky they were called thunderbirds and they transformed into humans and mm-hmm. uh, and, and things like this so it's kind of parallel somewhat with you know, the, the Nephilim and the Watchers and all that lot in, you know, in the Bible. So it's strange, but, there's a, you know, we, we tackle as much as we can in the final yeah. chapter of the book. Well, could I, yeah, could I yeah, go my thoughts? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, you almost have to concede um, with this, this alternate view, like an almost supernatural um, creation of, of Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago. That's what Edgar Cayce says. He says it took place in a continent in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, you know, you have the Australopithecines that turn into the Homo genus, and, you know, you have Homo erectus in uh, Dimenisi, Georgia, that was found a couple of years ago, 1.8 million years. So you have these theoretical precursors to Homo sapiens. But <clears throat> there is a school of thought, I was just reading about how, you know, Crick, um, who came, came up with um, basically the, the godfather of the DNA genome, really thought there was some kind of almost... Uh, alien intervention you know to create homo sapiens i really think that when you it wouldn't be american genesis in my eyes it'd be like out of atlantis instead of out of africa and it, it, that sounds bizarre but there's still a lot of questions about where homo sapiens come from there seems to be this bizarre acceleration that took place and then boom you have this 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 uh species that is is far more advanced you know it's like the the DNA of Homo erectus or some of the you know cousins of, of humans uh, might have been used, uh, you know, in some genetic engine you know engineering experiment, if you will. That, and that, that's basically when you read the Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh in, in the Bible and the mystics, they're all talking about like a supernatural uh, founding of, of Homo sapiens. And I know that's tough to swallow, but it's it's across the board. It's in all the myths and legends. And uh, it's it's really an interesting thing to think about. You know, you have so much stunning uh, similarity around the world that is, you know, is beyond coincidence. 
if you read, you know, Graham Hancock stuff and you look at the, the, the Quasicodals and the Veracoaches and, and the, um, the great civilizers who showed up after the flood, they were all, they're carrying these man bags all around the world. So it's not like the similar iconography is well beyond just, just one item. They are the repromulgators of civilization. They all have, you know, the same um, attributes. They're tall and bearded and they have these man bags. It's just astounding. You see six fingers and six toes all around the planet in statues and petroglyphs. And then in the Bible, the giant of Gath has six fingers and six toes. It's that level of specificity through myth and legend, petroglyphs, religious documents, uh, historical narratives, the mystics and the the uh, secret societies that just stuns me. And that's what you know, the the professional doesn't go around the world looking at these things, looking. They're only looking to debunk, you know, uh, show me, the, put the giant skull on my desk. If not, don't bother me. And whatever, that, I'm not dissing anyone. I'm just saying, you know, the whole breadth of this is like, it's so stunning and hidden in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Well, some of the things you guys were talking about there just reminded me of something. Um, now, I, f- I think I first read about this in a book by Laura Knight Yadchik. We've had her on the show a few times uh, called Comets in the Horns of Moses. Um, and she found a report about um, the Tunguska cometary explosion um, over Russia in, I think it was 1906, something around there. And some scientists found that there were actually some genetic mutations that happened to the, to the, the life forms around that area. And that kind of, um, in the book, it, it, it sparks this kind of idea that cometary bombardments um, can induce kind of these genetic changes. And for me, that raises the question, because um, you guys mentioned um, the, I mean, all these flood myths and the, um, the idea of the cometary bombardment around 12,000 years ago that, that uh, caused this massive destruction over North America. I know uh, Graham Hancock wrote, wrote about it in his latest book. And uh, Firestone and West and them um, wrote about it in in their book from a, from several years ago. So we've got these these two these ideas of cometary bombardments that uh, that have been largely ignored in the academic world. Um, but there are uh, there is a small group of scientists that are working on this, uh, doing very serious and very uh, very good work on it. And then we've got this idea of of evolution and how these um, well, if you if you look at the at the you know the historical evolutionary record. There are these kind of punctuations in in the in the record to where there's periods of extremely rapid development, and so I'm wondering if there might be a connection with um, with this catastrophism, because you know possibly with these um, with these comets. Because if you think about it, you know the 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 new a new species comes from the air. Well, there may be a supernatural element to that, but that might be kind of inextricably intertwined with uh with a physical aspect being this this chaotic introduction of these uh this comet these cometary bombardments which come you know repeatedly cyclically throughout history that kind of um you know introduce this whole level of of um you know mutation in in the the, the species existing on the planet and that might be the kind of uh um let's say mechanism for this this um like rapid growth, rapid development of new and more complex species. I was just wondering, well, I just wanted to throw that out there and see if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah, I'll just give my quick, uh, it's it's very good to, to remain sober and scientific. There's no question about it. And 
I often say I wish this mystery wasn't so uh, seemingly supernatural, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I'm the kind of guy that, like, I'll go to Pumapunko, I'll look at a stone, I'm like, you know, uh, let's give a piece of gray andesite to 10 master sculptors with the tools of the time, and I don't think they'll be able to do that. Or let's date this site, or let's look at uh, how Saksiwaman was built. You know, I could show you examples uh, that are just uh, outrageous that I I don't think uh, the people of the time could have pulled off. Or let's see why there's elongated skulls all around the planet. Mm -hmm. But the honest truth is, like Edgar Cayce, the Bible, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, Plato, Madame Blavatsky, and all these religious documents uh, talk about like the original Homo sapien, or the Adam, if you will, being an androgynous being. And every culture has the myths and legends. Quasicodal was the son of um, an androgynous being. And they essentially talk about the birthing of the human race of Homo sapiens, like being this, this kind of... Um, like a supernatural event from an androgynous being. It sounds so strange to say, but if you spent like, you know, 486 hours researching it like I have, you just see all around the world the, the hermaphrodite statues, the representations of, of these like a supernatural androgynous god. You know, you wonder why you have two versions of history, right? One is like the one that, that, that we're all taught that flies in the face of every religious document, every myth and legend every, um, you know, conceivable alternative piece of information that has come from the past. Like, it's just stunning how different they are. Mm -hmm. And then the honest truth is, you know, what what I'm talking about, what we're talking about here, this alternate view of history that has some supernatural elements to it, I honestly and firmly believe it's it's mostly accurate. And in 50 years, we're going to look at that model as much more accurate. You know, just think of how precise and important these oral traditions are all around the planet that is saying the same thing, how accurate they are, how science keeps proving through tsunami frequency, understanding, and and, and all this stuff. And I just find it, um, there's two models, and I just find that one is, is just uh, much more stunning, stunningly accurate and lines up with all the oral traditions. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds weird, you know. It's no, just, no, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because, uh, you know, I appreciate Graham Hancock. He's really, you know, like like uh, being objective and being scientific and Randall Carson. And, you know, I talk with – I went down and talked to Al Goodyear down in South Carolina at the Topper site, the 55,000-year-old uh, uh, pre-Clovis site that, that he believes he found. And, you know, I'm I'm walking in both worlds. I just have to say – as an investigator and a detective, my gut is leading me in a different direction. I, it's mm-hmm. stunning, uh, the, the, the similar iconography, the missing legends, and it just draws me in that direction without agenda, quite frankly. Yeah, and when you look at it, I mean, it is, it is a massive mystery, and it's one that's been totally ignored by the, the scientific community. And when you look at it, I mean, I mean, like, there aren't, well, at least at this point in time, you know, we really only have limited toolkit of, of ideas, um, you know, of, of different, um, you know, possible causes and how this happened. And, you know, one isn't very satisfying and that's the, you know, the, um, largely uniformitarian, um, you know, evolutionary story, which just doesn't mesh with a lot of the facts. And then you've got this supernatural version that, I mean, when you look at the, uh, well, it's a good explanation for what it is because you look at it and you say, well, what else could it be? 
Um, you know, there may be that mysterious, you know, unknown third explanation, but as it is, we've got these stories, and, you know, they do tend to account for the facts, you know, as we see them. So I think that's at least a, you know, a starting point from which we have to go. And like you said, in 50 years, I think if people are at least, um, at least giving the, um, not necessarily the benefit of the doubt, but just acknowledging these stories and, and looking at them, I think will make a lot more development or a lot more progress in understanding this, you know, the, the real history of, of humanity, then, you know, then by ignoring it. Totally. I don't want to hog all the time, but that, that's a great point. And satisfying is exactly it. It's like one version answers like every possible inquiry and mystery in human history. You know, like um, the, the, the alternative slash kind of almost supernatural-ish one. It's like, okay, I understand what the Greeks were talking about, about gods and demigods and titans in a lost continent in the Atlantic that Plato was talking about. I understand what the natives are talking about now, about, you know, little people and giants. It's like, it's not all fanciful nonsense. I, I understand what the wisdom keepers are talking about, the ancient ones who built these sites with, with a lost technology. And then you have the official one that is so unsatisfying. You got, tells you, it's funny, it's like you, you, you get into an orientation when you're a professional. I've traveled in those those realms and I understand. It's like, it's like it just like deadens your intellectual curiosity or your love of mythology. You know, why do people love Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones? They intuitively know they tap into the collective mind that understands there's a different view of history that is true. That's been wiped from the map with a PTSD ridden cataclysmic event. So we're piecing it together and guys like you and I are doing it like for the love of it, you know, just like I get paid like, you know, two cents an hour for my giant research, you know, <laughs> sell a couple books here and there. But I don't give a rat's ass. I think it's fascinating. And I really believe the version of history you're talking about will be found to be true in the in the coming decades. And I, I it's only a matter of time where they find a site much older than Gobekli Tepe. I, I must say that. Mm-hmm. Well, w- one of the things uh, I also wanted to ask you guys about uh brought up in the book is the idea that these uh, giants were building the megalithic sites, uh, specifically the mounds in the eastern U.S. mostly, and even oh, in the uh, the hinges in the U.K. Um, and you brought up lost technology, and these these mounds are very fascinating in their their astronomical alignments and just the amount of work that's involved in, in building these mounds. Just the, the huge, just just the giant size of them. And so I'd just like to ask, uh, what, what's what's going on there with all these mounds? Um, yeah, I'll answer that one. Yeah, um, basically, there's over, um, I think there's over 100,000 recorded earthworks in North America. Um, there's at least 10,000 huge mounds, uh, you know, certainly in different shaped earthworks, just in the Ohio Valley. Uh, many of them have been destroyed, many are on private land, many have been flattened and things like this. But, um, you know, you've got to look at it from different perspectives, There's different timelines here. Again, if you go much further south, right down to uh, Louisiana and almost on the Gulf Coast, you've got uh, Poverty Point, you've got Watson Break, you've got uh, there's one other site, uh, Jackson, I forget the name, but actually I actually visited this recently uh, about a year ago. And they go back to what, three, th- between 3,000 and 3,800 years BC. And they're the oldest known mound sites in America. There are shell mounds on the California coast that some, there's one date we came, one bit of carbon dating that goes back 20,000 years, which is, wow. we, we can't 
can't quite get my head around that one, huh. but I'm not sure how, if it was a bad technology at the time when they did it, I'm not sure, but it's there and it's in the record and we mentioned it very briefly uh, in the book, I think. Um, but mainly you've got the uh, Adina Mounds, um, which date from around, officially around no more than really 1,000, 1,300 BC. Please correct me here, Jim, if I make any mistakes. Um, and then we have the Hopewell Mounds, probably from something like 400 AD onwards, and then the later cultures, like Fort Ancient and other such uh, people come in and change them. But the Adena ones are the most interesting. This is where the real research is happening. We've got uh, our good friend Greg Little and Andrew Collins are working on this uh, and a few other people. Uh, and this is the really relationship with the giants. And this is what they're found in. They're the, the literally found inside, buried deep, often below ground level, deep below in the ground. So often they're not above ground level. People don't realize this. And they're stone chambers. Some of the mounds, like Miami's Burke, had stone facing on it as well. So it's more like a pyramid. Um, and there's there's other such sites which are just so large, like Newark, um um, and ones around Chillicothe, which are massive, complex geometric earthwork systems covering great, you know, many, many acres, uh, which encode geometry, metrology, astronomical alignments, geodesy, linking up with other sites around the country. We have similar ones down in Florida. You get them way up um, north as well, along the whole northern Canada edge you know going up to the great lakes literally you know mainly they grip around the kind of mississippi uh, but they spread out from there but you do find them in different parts of the country and, they, and there's so many of them and they're quite sophisticated they're, they've got stone in, in, enclosed within them and the giants are involved and like and so we have to question you know why is this overlooked as a reality that these giants may have been involved in the construction of these mounds you get remarkably similar earthworks much further south, you know, going into even going into the Olmec world in, in um, Central America, the other side of the Gulf Coast, they have mounds there. They have earthworks. They have huge cities made of earth with stone facing and, and stone chambers within them. It's very similar, in fact, when you really look into it. In Britain, Europe, you got obviously a very similar thing, which is probably a bit older. So you have to question: Did the influence come from Europe, or which way round was it? Because um, the very earliest ones in North America are kind of on par with some of the oldest ones here. And so you got, you know, there's a big question mark about who was doing what and when. But again, many of these sites in Britain, there's legends and stories, and we found accounts of giants as well, not in the, the same extent as we find in North America, most notably the Ohio Valley, but most certainly, um, you know, there are correlations with the metrology, the geometry, the design, the style spec, uh, the legends, the stories, the astronomy, and so forth. So, um, you know, we have, you know, it does fit the theory that there was a great culture in prehistory that influenced all, you know, cultures all over the world. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that it, it reminded me of was uh, uh, the reason why I think there is some sort of Atlantean uh, connection here is because uh, if you read about, uh, like, Plato's description of Atlantis, uh, I believe Andrew Collins wrote a book about that, uh, uh, many of the uh, the Atlantean cities, at least that Plato described, are similar in the earthworks and the, the moats and the, the raised terraced uh, or, uh, areas where, like, the, the people would live. Uh, and it really re reminded me of that and how it supports the idea of a an Atlantean kind of dispersal of people throughout uh, at least the United States. Uh, yeah. 
Good point. Um, Greg Little's book about Edgar Casey's legacy of the mound builders. Edgar Casey gave 68 readings on the mound building people. It was really, it's so, it's so odd that, that Casey basically gave readings. If, if people don't know Edgar Casey, he was, he, uh, had an eighth grade education and he would go into a trance state mm-hmm. in the late, um, you know, from Hopkinsville, Kentucky, I think. And, uh, anyways, he gave all these health readings, but then he started to talk about lost civilizations and past lives, you know, out of nowhere, and they recorded this. It's at the ARE Library in Virginia Beach. So, anyways, Casey talked about the mound builders in 68 different readings. He talked about the ones in the mound builders in Florida being of of um, <clears throat> a much larger stature than the current people of today, and they were proportionally large, which is interesting because the skeletal accounts we find always talk about proportion. But anyways, he talked about the influence of, of um, so essentially the, the early mound builders around 3000 BC came up to avoid these the sacrifice cults that were going on, mm-hmm. and they were more benevolently oriented. And a lot of the earthworks, like at Portsmouth, Ohio, you, you see the exact – uh, duplicate representation of Plato's Central City of Atlantis. It's in Greg Little's book. It's in our book too. We mm-hmm. uh, got permission from Greg, but it's this earthwork, this ringed earthwork that Squire and Davis uh, surveyed and cataloged before it was destroyed. It is just stunning how similar it is. And you know, Casey's saying this thing, and then bam, right here you have this kind of freak show similarity going on. And archaeologists have never been able to describe why there's moats there. You know, you have. It's the oddest thing. All around the planet, we have pyramids everywhere. We have the most enigmatic and crazy things. The creator gods are rocking handbags and the similar iconography, hmm. right? You would think if history were the, this boring kind of version that we're getting, we would have this kind of mundane landscape. It's like we dropped on a freaking alien world, and it makes no sense because we're looking at it the wrong way, and we're not looking at it um, – through the eyes of myths and legends and and, and uh, oral traditions. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I'm reading Greg Little's Mound Builders book right now. It talks about Casey's readings, and uh, yeah. it really is fascinating. And uh, how Casey uh, is talking about things that only came to light much later uh, because of archaeological findings, and the idea that you know the, the lost tribes of Israel uh, populated uh, the U.S. and then went down to Mexico City. Um, and and the the Adena cultures and even even coming down from from Canada as well, um, it, the the this these mounds like the Serpent Mound. Are, are, if if anyone looks at the the building of them, it's really quite fascinating to me. Absolutely, I mean you could jump in there, but I, I I'm glad you're reading that book. It's awesome. I'm writing a book on uh, the search for Edgar Casey's Lost World right now, and when we traveled in Bolu- uh, Peru and Bolivia. Every outrageous megalithic site we encountered, Casey's talking about it essentially like being an Atlantean colony. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, and I understand that that impulse is like, it's like you're talking about, oh, it's so wacky and crazy, you're out of your mind. But it's like, wow, man, shit, is this how they did it? I would mm-hmm. look at, you can't get a micron, forget about a hair or razor blade, between so much stonework. And, you know, mm-hmm. for me as a stonemason, it is like, you can't express to people how effed up. The stonework is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it, it, like one of the videos you have, you're showing one of these dolmens, and they're just so huge. It's like, how did they ever get there? You know, the dolmens, uh, the weight of these stones, just like at Stonehenge. I, I, I just, I'm befuddled. 
Um, it, giants did it. <laughs> <laughs> How they do it? Did they they just lift these things up? Did they have like yeah. amazing technological abilities? Did they have things that we're Casey's, not aware of? I'll, I'll jump. You can answer. Yeah, uh, Casey says specifically they used like gases, um, lasers, uh, vibration, sound. That they had this technology mm-hmm. that help them build a site like Saksiwaman or, you know, so, and I'll, at the same time, I'll say, let's not underestimate uh, human capability because we know the Romans built yeah. uh, incredible stuff, hundreds of tons. So you just can't look at everything and say that's impossible. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that humans did that is whacked out. And, but then there are things that are off the hook that um, ironically Casey identifies in his readings. So I'll throw it to Hugh. He probably has his own thoughts. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I mean, just looking at the stories and the legends, and uh, and even even discoveries, you know, uh, in mounds near Stonehenge, they found extremely tall skeletons. Um, and there's, you know, the earliest legend of Stonehenge talks about giant um, Merlin employing giants to move the stones for him. And also, you know, talking about technology, um, he, you know, he was they, they had thousands of soldiers went over to Ireland to collect the so-called stones from Killaroos to bring them to Stonehenge for King Aurelius and all this kind of stuff. But you know, this is all the, in the history of the Kings of Britain, this classic book by Geoffrey of Monmouth written in eleven hundreds, and and they they couldn't move the stones, they couldn't deconstruct the site, they couldn't get it over to England, so they got giants involved and Merlin used something called gears or used a gear to move it and like so and, and he did it easily with his gear or gears and whatever so what is that is some kind of technology that he was using uh other stories say that he levitated the stones he was able to manipulate the stones and move them so just at stonehenge you know the most famous megalithic site on the planet you have these stories um and you find that in other places as well you find these stories of sound technology um, you know, being able to levitate stones. You have Coral Castle, obviously, mm-hmm. in Florida, which I visited a few years ago, which is Edward Scowlin built a massive megalithic site mm-hmm. uh, in the 1950s. And so, you know, there's something going on. So the technology is there. If one five-foot Latvian guy can build Coral Castle, <laughs> then a 100 normal-sized people who are smart can build a megalithic site. Whether they use, you know, what how they did it is a whole other question. But the, the clues are there. It's just a case of like, you know, reconstructing that. And hopefully, with this new TV show, Jim's going to build, um, you know, an equivalent of the Great Pyramid, aren't you, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> Full size. Love- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be so like soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to. Throw out, Hugh, you said uh, you talked about Stonehenge. The earliest representation of Stonehenge is on a tapestry from the 12th century, and Merlin's hanging with the giant who's putting up a stone, right? <laughs> That's correct, yeah. He's um, actually like the, the giant is kind of lifting the lintel into place uh-huh. under the direction of Merlin. And this is the earliest ever picture of Stonehenge has ever been ever that's known about and yet it's in all the Stonehenge books but there's no one mentions the sort of you know the the elephant in the room that there's a giant lifting the stone up so hang on a sec um so is that you know is that a reality and then you know as you'll see in our one of our forthcoming books we're going to be looking at Stonehenge we're going to be looking at Britain um and I've I've started I, I live right near Stonehenge so I've been doing research in this area and it's amazing what I've, come, what I've come up with already. Uh, Jim's collected a few accounts a couple of years ago. And we've kind of, I've been researching those, going into more detail 
And just in the local town here, there's a nine foot four giant was dug up. There's a, a giant effigy used to be paraded through the local town for hundreds of years. Uh, it links with St. Christopher, who was like a Canaanite giant from the Bible, who apparently came to the area around Stonehenge. And so there's, there's some weird stuff going on that a lot of people don't have a clue about. So this is why we're kind of pushing um, the research in different parts of the world now, because it's not really being researched. It's not really being published. And we, we feel it's important to kind of find these links and, and get them out there in, in a book format. I think it's really essential, in fact. Well, I wanted to ask you about one other type of, um, you know, human remains or, or human-looking remains that have been found. But before I get to that question, you just mentioned that you guys are, are working on another book. I wanted to ask, um, first of all, what you've discovered, you know, in the time since you published this book that is relevant. And then um, if you guys can just describe some of the projects you're working on now and when we might be able to, you know, see them in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, Jim's coming over here. We're going to be working on, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of keeping it under wraps a little bit because we haven't fully decided on, on the, the exact kind of format. Yeah, but basically, you know, I'm harassing Jim that we do a book on giants in Britain because, you know, we want to do a worldwide book. We want to kind of, you know, do all that kind of thing. But there's so much going on here. Uh, I've been digging into the records. Jim's done a ton of research already. Um, and there's so much here and it's, there's only one or two books that have been written about it, like back in the 1970s, uh, a brilliant book called Sowers of Thunder by Anthony Roberts. I do recommend that if people are interested in ancient British giants and, and giant lore and folklore, it's a brilliant book, absolutely inspirational. Um, and he's a big influence on me, actually. He, he was like, um, contemporary with another of my mentors, John Michelle. Um, and so, yeah, and then we're going to be looking around the world. We, we've got ideas for other things. You know, we want to, um, you know, get into, because we, we both put our heads together over a lot of megalithic research um, and things like this. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of potential. We've got some TV shows we, we're hoping to get get moving in the next year or two. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, we're just going to keep we're going to keep working, keep pushing forward, uh, and discoveries are being made. I mean, there's been discoveries. There's a very recent one Jim can talk to you about in Malaysia, mm-hmm. and he actually investigated this uh, of a very tall skeleton that was uncovered. There's more accounts from America. We're getting that getting sent to us. Giant artifacts in North America. Um, I've located some giant bones in England. Jim and I are going to go and look at uh, when he comes here. Um, and we're hoping to kind of look at the ones in Castle Now in France. We're going to investigate that, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a constant quest to try and find out the truth uh, of these mysteries. Yes, Jim, did you want to talk about that Malaysia case a bit? Uh, yeah, I'm, there's a historian who um, <clears throat> reported finding bones of enormous dimensions. And then there were grave sites in Malaysia, too, uh, on this island that are, that are enormously long. Uh, I talked to the Malaysian Tourist Bureau. I've, I've thrown out a bunch of emails. What I got back was, you know, my feeling is like, you know, he's claiming to have handled bones of, of like nine-foot-tall humans or something like that, which is well out of normal range. So I haven't gotten in touch with the historian. I feel like, you know, it might smack of a little... Um, um, and not clickbaiting, but I, I, I haven't, you know, like there was a story a couple of years ago in the Kalar region, northern Iraq. It says bones of 10-foot men found. I'm like, 
AK News put it out, which was a was a legitimate Kurdish television network. So I hunted down the story because AK News went out of business. I got in touch with Dalal, uh, um, what's his name? Sorry. His name will come in. Zuma Dilshad, uh, a professor of Assyrian studies uh, in Leiden, the Netherlands. And he's from the Kalar region in northern Iraq. And those douchebags from Syria, I mean, from ISIS, are like destroying the place right now. Uh, You know, but he, uh, his, one of his students found three skeletons. Uh, one was seven foot seven with a twelve inch skull. One was badly damaged, and one was a child skeleton. So the story got it all wrong, reporting ten foot men. But what I did find out was there was like a seven foot seven skeleton with a twelve inch skull. I know I don't know if it's been um, uh, how how studied it's been because obviously there's a ton of conflict right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know th- these are the stories you got to look into. You just can't sit back and like. You know, and that's one of the problems. There's so much BS on the on the internet that um, if you don't debunk this stuff, you know, like if I, I could be a debunker, quite frankly, I could sit back and pick and choose and, and be a big hero and, and pretend I'm smarter than everyone. And you know, but I, I if I'm going to look into the tough cases, uh, I got to look into the weak ass cases too and debunk them. And Hugh does it, Andrew does it, Hancock does it. I really appreciate that. Brian Forrester does it. These are all authors you should you should read if you're interested in these studies. So I'll throw out that I'm um, on January 23rd, I think it is, here in the United States. My brother and I did a second two-hour documentary on the lost colony of Roanoke and the Dare Stone. And if I will say myself, it came out pretty slick. It's we've fought to like raise the IQ of the show, we, the shows we do, create a different model. We work with, I think, like a dozen different professionals in a sense of camaraderie to figure out these problems. And I know people, you know, Search for the Lost Giants uh, ran a couple of years ago, and I've been traveling and researching and conceiving the last couple of years of, of a, sh- a broader show that I want to do with Hugh and my brother. Uh, basically, looking into a wide range of anthropological and archaeological mysteries uh, with native voices independent research voices and skeptical professional voices all working together on different investigations around the world. So that, that, that's what I'm conceiving of, conceiving of. And I, I think that we'll be able to formulate and pull off the show in the next year or so. And, and I hope sooner than later, but I'm very confident. Uh, I'm speaking at the ARE conference in um, uh, Virginia beach in October. Eric Von Daniken and Andrew Collins will be there I'm working on the, a book with Hugh, and I'm working on a book on Edgar Casey's Lost World right now. And mm. I'll say to any listener right now who's tuning in, you know, what we're talking about, uh, you know, I won't speak for myself, but the rest of you are intelligent and thoughtful people who are trying to piece together the story of humanity. You know, everybody seems to be a voracious reader. Nobody's like a manic weirdo who corners you in the street and talks your head off. It's just like <laughs> we're presenting reasonable evidence to try to figure out about myths and legends and things like that so you know i think it's like don't engage trolls and debunkers just like make your case and um and and let it rest and and people the right people will find it and eventually and it's gaining steam people are catching on to this idea of a lost world it's really gaining steam and i'll just say that i thoroughly believe without agenda that what we're talking about today will be viewed as 
as fairly, uh, fairly more accurate than what the present model is, you know. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'll end with that. Well, you mentioned Brian Forster. That's actually what I wanted to ask you guys about because in the book you've got some of the photos of these um, elongated skulls. And one of the points, well, I'll just give a little bit of a, of a background. I mean, when I first encountered the elongated skulls, it seemed like a kind of anomaly. Not a lot of people were talking about it, and it seemed like, oh, well, here's a few photos of these elongated skulls, and that was kind of it. And so, you know, for a while I was like, oh, well, that's just, that's really cool, um, you know, kind of weird. But uh, it's only been in the last several years, I think, that that um, so many more um, photographs and actual specimens have come forward, and Brian Forster has done a lot of that uh, work, you know, and he's he's got a great YouTube channel where he goes to obscure little museums and looks at these skulls, and the thing about them is that they are actually larger skulls than normal, because there is this phenomenon of, um, you know, binding the skulls to, to shape them in that kind of conehead shape, but these are actually skulls that have Bigger, a bigger cranial volume than a normal skull. So there's actually more matter than a normal skull. Um, really strange-looking skulls. I was wondering, um, first, of, if you could just tell us uh, a bit about these skulls and what, if any, connection they have to, um, you know, the things we've, we've been discussing, like giants, um, you know, the, the mounds, or anything like that. And also that uh, a lot of these skulls, first of all, have been found in, like, South America, and but I think you guys mentioned some that have been found in what, what was it Florida? Um, can you guys talk about that? Oh, yeah, uh, Hugh can go because I just ran my mouth. But uh, <laughs> absolutely, in uh, Malta, Puma Punku, you know, we just saw all the skulls in the museum on the tour. But I would like to throw my two cents after after Hugh uh, talks, please. All right. <clears throat> uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, I'm actually uh, elongating my skull as we speak. Cranial uh, <laughs> uh, deformation hats. I'm only joking. Uh, but basically, uh, they're, they're all over the world. These skulls. They're not just in South America. I mean, Brian's. Uh, I've been. I spend time with Brian. We run tours every November. We go to Peru together. Jim came with us pre- just in November previously, and we had a good look at some of these, and they're utterly amazing. Some of them are just so large. They have different amount of sutras. They've got red hair. They're like this elite culture along the whole west coast of South and Central America. I've seen them in Olmec land all over Mexico. I've seen them some in North America. Quite a few sites, quite a few mound sites in North America have these skulls. Uh, some of them are related to giants. We know uh, we feature it in the book in the Anatomic Anomalies chapter. We have a whole uh, area about cranial deformation, elongated skulls. So there is a relationship. The elite were doing this to their skulls. Um, there is a strange theory coming forth based on DNA evidence, actually, that indeed they are, some of them are natural because there's been babies and fetuses found that have elongation of their skulls. So it's like a natural thing that can occur as well. So this is where it gets weird and like there's almost like a different DNA kind of thing going on. They've been found across Europe, the Middle East, uh, South Pacific, Japan, Almost every country in Russia, uh, around the world, uh, Africa, Egypt, um, the list goes on. So it was something that people like to do in prehistory. Now, why they did that, I have no idea. Whether it was something to do with the, you know, a lot of people say it's to do with the elite or royal class. Uh, it could be to enhance the pineal gland. It could be uh, to emulate the gods who were around thousands of years ago. Um, it could be to, you know, enhance, you know, 
faculties of the brain. So you could then, you know, maybe it will enhance uh, certain glands. So your uh, telekinetic or psychic abilities will be increased or your intelligence even. Um, and so, yeah, you do get that. And um, I think there's a connection. There's one area in um, we write about a whole chapter about in the book, actually, about Sonora in Mexico. Jim could talk about this maybe a bit, a bit more detail. But there there's an area where in the 1930s, a whole load of giant skeletons, mummified remains with red hair were found up to eight feet tall, I believe. Uh, and re- more recently, you know, this is all forgotten about. This is all covered up. Smithsonian were involved in it. And then more recently, in like 2012, within 20 miles of there, another site, probably more modern, you know, a little bit more recent, uh, probably a thousand or two thousand years old or something. A whole bunch of elongated skull skeletons were found. Extreme elongation. And, uh, and that's just raised so many questions. So, you know, were these two different elite cultures? Were they kind of, uh, did they know about each other? Were they around at the same time? Uh, and again, this is one aspect of prehistory, which is, is very neatly covered up. Uh, and we have to question why that is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, it's another example of cultures uh, separated by thousands of miles and thousands of years. We're all doing the most extreme and bizarre, unthinkable thing that couldn't just have been conjured up by some hundred monkey syndrome, you know. And it shows you that, like Brian, basically, independent researcher, uh, brought this all to light. Mostly, uh, you know, himself. I know he worked with like David and, and and other people, and other people have studied this mystery, but his consistent um effort brought this to light now it's just like people looking like what the hell is going on you know which shows that you know i i think frankly you know hugh and i did it with the idea of giants we've kind of brought this idea to life with with people like giants what the hell you know and uh graham hancock has done stuff richard Cassero with all this god self icon around the planet there's a lot of independent research you study similar iconography and stuff so it shows you if you put your uh, effort into one of these mysteries you can like push it forward but <clears throat> it's another example like i said i it's the most bizarre activity you know and I, when i was talking to todd disatel the molecular anthropologist who i had on our uh, on our show who i love he's a great guy uh he just kind of like, eh. I, I said, you're kidding me. Like, all around the planet, it was elongated in the skulls. I mean, it's just like, and he, there was no, like, intellectual curiosity to go beyond that point. I understand he, he studies physical remains, but it's like, study these, dude. Or just, like, like, come up with a reasonable theory, you know? And once again, the reasonable theory is it's like a shared mother culture or a diffusionism or something else. Something else is going on. How the hell can you just do the most bizarre thing to your, your freaking kids all around the world, you know, head binding. And, you know, once again, it's like the 50th thing that strongly indicates that there was a, a shared mother culture in my eyes. Hmm. Well, uh, and I want to talk, yeah. And Brian is, is, is a brilliant guy. I want to talk his game up for a minute. If you go for a tour, definitely go with Brian and Hugh down there. I just, I found Brian to be objective, intelligent and reasonable and he's often portrayed as like some some not you know like some certain skeptics who I like to run their head through a wall you know like they, they like to run their mouth and hide behind their computer and like take shots at people but it's not like they want to find the truth they just want to like feel better by belittling people which you know I should be more forgiving but there are certain trolls that get under my skin that run their mouth that are just you know the POSs they they just can't get a hit 
So they're getting a dopamine hit by like deriding people who really care. Like Brian cares. He's like a wonderful guy. He's working hard. He cares about human history. And he's going to be proven right at some point. Totally. And and then this weasel hiding behind his computer is going to be crying in his in his mother's basement. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> sorry, it's okay. It's fine. Uh, Feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of uh, anatomical anomalies, uh, I'd also like to to touch on another area that you guys covered in the book, which is the double rows of teeth found on these skeletons uh, that that are really strange. I don't, I don't know if they're connected to any kind of advanced intellectual capacity or amazing mathematical abilities or anything like that. But I'd just like to get you guys to talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- shall, I, shall I give my view on this first, Jim? <laughs> sure, we, we may have different views on it, but yes. Um, yeah, this is very controversial now. This is very, very controversial. There's been a lot of skeptics harassing us about this. But when we were putting the book together, TV show, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of reports of, of, you know, double rows of teeth, extra teeth, supernumerary teeth. There are accounts in the Smithsonian um, actual annual reports there's one account from florida where even a third row of teeth was coming through that's very specific some of them are very specific some of them very clearly explain that there's two rows of teeth but the parlance of the time is what has caused problems here because now we're realizing some of them you know and we we do mention this in the book but we don't we didn't really have uh, at the time we didn't go into it because we we didn't do uh, we needed a bit more time with it really but um but there are some accounts around the world i mean people do get two rows of teeth there are people with extra teeth i i've had people uh, contact me who said they that they had sort of freakishly tall people in their family who had two rows of teeth and they had to get them removed so it is a genuine phenomena uh, whatever the skeptics say but the, with when you're looking at the 1800s You've got a bit of a problem there because often you could be describing literally two rows of teeth it could be in the upper to upper jaw and the lower jaw. So there's a bit of a debate about that going on. And Andy Wyatt was one of the people who really, really became quite angry and abusive towards me and Jim about this. Uh, <laughs> so he, he did, and he's, he's still on his website, in fact. And um, and so you know, but then so Jim's been in contact with him and talking with him about it. Um, so I think there's something going on there, but. Not all of the accounts can be, you know, absolutely 100% sure about it. I mean, we did say that in the book. We never claimed every single one of these accounts is true. But there are just some accounts which are just so descriptive and clear in what they're saying that it's really hard to ignore it as a thing. I mean, we spoke to the dental anthropologist uh, from New York, uh, New York University, and she was intrigued by it because she 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 had she showed us evidence of extra teeth um occurring you know in prehistory she showed us some um um you know actual examples which we looked at and we featured in the tv show and in the book so it is a thing but and she 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 suggested maybe it's because of the size of the person there's a trigger you know a genetic trigger which more teeth would grow in and we, and we know from the canadian lakes area there were was tribes who were growing you know on average they were increasing in height by about an inch every hundred years or was it a thousand years? And they also had extra teeth. They had double, some had double rows of teeth and this was clearly stated in the academic record. So the, there is a thing going on with that, but some of them are to do, you know, the problem is, is the parlance of the time, the, the way people used to speak back then over to you, Jim. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, Andy White, anthropologist from South Carolina, I, I talked to him. <laughs> he had written about um, Double Rows of Teeth around when we were doing our show. So I spoke with his anthropology class a couple times, and, and we, we hung out for a couple days and talked about all these things. And he was saying that when he was uh, uh, doing reports in the 80s, he started to find all these accounts of giants with double rows of teeth that working as an archaeologist uh, or an anthropologist. And he came up with this idea that he thought it was the parlance of the time. A double row of teeth made, meant like perfect teeth, like up and down, because, you know, these um, colonists obviously had uh, far worse teeth than the native skulls that often had perfect teeth. And I believe he's onto something. I believe that, you know, a lot of the, the accounts we find, like in England and France, they never mentioned double rows of teeth. Um, they do mention jawbone over the face, however. And I came to the conclusion that I think some are legitimate, like the Smithsonian reports of even a third row of teeth, the supernumerary teeth. But I don't think like every account of double rows of teeth is so, because you would find more in the anthropological record. You would find more um, evidence, evidence of this, like professionals, you know, like there's graveyards of teeth in New York. Uh, I'm sorry, graveyards of teeth. Graveyards of skeletons that were, they're all portrayed as having double rows of teeth. And it's like if there are 300 skeletons with double rows of teeth, then we're going to see more of this in the, in the record. So I believe that Andy is probably correct to a certain extent. And then Hugh is, is correct in saying that some of these are like weird anatomic anomalies or uh, supernumerary teeth or something else is going on. But what I was telling Andy was that this – strengthens my case even further that these are uh, real human skeletons that were documented, right? This is another, like, layer of it. Like, yeah, they, you, you're talking, you're, you're analyzing a skull, and you're looking at the teeth. And if they're not double, you're commenting on how perfect they are, how the jaw fits over the face. Because this whole thing gets dismissed as, like, these are all hoaxes or mastodon bones. And I'm like, no, no, these are human skeletons. They are stationary objects. They're not getting up and moving around, you know, and they are being measured by, you know, professionals at the time given specific measurements. So it kind of strengthens the argument that there's more to look at in this mystery. Um, so that's my take. Hmm. Well, one of the uh, things that you guys brought up in the book that I thought made a lot of sense uh, in relation to these double rolls of teeth was the it was, fact it was that probably my chapter. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it was it was. I think even the the anthropological dentist that uh, you guys were dealing with was the one who said it that the the giant's jaws were so big that the mouth maybe had naturally grown a second row of teeth. Mm-hmm. Well, you mean you're that big? You got to eat a lot of food. Maybe you need a few more <laughs> teeth to chew it with. You know. Uh, but what were they eating? That's the question. Yeah. Were they you know, cannibals and all that? You know, you need extra teeth to get through. Yeah, you get know. to that marrow. Yeah. It could be a weird thing like six fingers and six toes too. It could be some 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 literal anatomic anomaly associated with with um, enormous people of the past. You know, like mm-hmm. once again, we're, we're, who's rocking six fingers and six toes? It's the weirdest thing. You know, it's like I know people have it. It's funny because it's a genetic condition, uh, but it's clearly associated with with giants. You know, once again, it's it's like uh, the Edgar Casey talks about it. Like I said, petroglyph statues in the South Pacific, all these isolated islands. Why do the, all the creator gods have six fingers and toes? I saw a 15th century uh, painting of Adam from the dude from Adam and Eve, and he has six fingers. <laughs> it's like, what the hell is going on, man? It's like. 
uh, you know, it's this world is like when you view it from the lens of what we're talking about, it's like a David Lynch movie. It is such a freak show, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Twin Peaks, Giants, Dwarves. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Well, how are you guys doing for time? Do we have do we have any more questions that we wanted to ask the guys? Well, uh, what is it? well I thought it was pretty fascinating how a lot of scientists are really just super focused on their speciality, like geology. Uh, geologists and then you have archaeologists and anthropologists and astrologists and i like how you guys try and bring these sciences together to come up with some sort of ideas or conclusions instead of being so hyper focused in their one field i really appreciate that thank you that's a great point hyper specialization of of uh the fields in academia is a problem just like the dot you know it happens in the physician you know it's do no harm is thrown out the window you know you have um, uh, just, just a different, you know, you go to the doctors, right? Prescription, 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 especially if you're older, it's like, where's the holistic approach to this, right? It's clearly wrong. And we know that, you know, we know that Pfizer is a bunch of, you know, sociopaths, just, just pushing drugs off label. They, they know the side effects and they're like, it's like Ford with the Pinto blowing up, you know, we'll, we'll pay out the death money because we know blank equals blank, you know, and mm-hmm. it happens in the pharmaceutical industry and in academia, it's an over-specialization. There was not a holistic look at it. A comparative mythologist would look at this whole thing differently and say, wow, look at the stunning connections. But if I'm entirely focused in one direction and one mode of inquiry, of course, I'm not going to see that. So I don't blame, I don't look at it like um, there's a conspiracy. I see it as an aspect of, of an inefficient, inaccurate way to view um, history. All right. Any any final thoughts, Hugh? Um, yeah, I just encourage listeners, I, I say this every radio thing we do, is like people in America or around the world, please, you know, we, we're, you know, check your local records, please. Check your local um, archives, even check your garden, see if there's any giant skulls. Because <laughs> uh, there's like, you know, this is how we find things. This is how the research really comes together. This is how, um, you know, local journals, that kind of thing, people you know. Uh, this is it's an important aspect of it because, you know, relying on the Internet isn't all where it's at. You know, a, a lot of our research was not on the Internet and we had to kind of go into the old records, the old book, go to libraries and things like this. And this is where the new stuff comes from. Uh, the new discoveries rather come from. Obviously, it's old stuff. And um, and so, yeah, we just encourage people to do that all around the world. You know, just anything you hear about, even if you've got a local legend that, that can often lead to a discovery it can lead to something else and this is what i've been doing locally here and i've been finding more and more so yeah so that side of things is intriguing uh, and needs to you know we just encourage people to get in touch with us they can contact us through the giants on record or search for the lost giants facebook page both jim and i just our hugh newman and jim vieira were both on facebook or they can contact me through megalithomania.co.uk and um yeah and we just you know we'd love to hear from people if, they, if they've got anything uh, they can share Great. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, guys. Um, Listeners, we've been talking to Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman, authors of Giants on Record. Um, Recommend you check it out. You can get it on Amazon and probably order it from your local bookshop. 
Um, so thanks again, guys. Um, it's been great talking to you. I mean, we learned a lot and it's just such a fascinating, well, so many fascinating topics uh, in the plural. So keep up the good work and we look forward to, to what you bring out in the future. Nice. Thanks a lot, guys. Good questions. Uh, uh, really enjoy it. Okay. Yeah, th- thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, you, Cheers. Jim and you, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. And, and we'll, we'll see you next week. So everyone take care.